Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. But I did one thing at Comedy Central that I'm not proud of because it was the right thing to do. And it was a big name that everyone was saying, oh, it'd be great to get them on Comedy Central. But it didn't fit the brand and it wasn't particularly risky. And, you know, at the end of the day, the things I think that really did work were the ones where people went, wow, did you see that last night? Or that? And Chappelle makes you think. He makes you think about who you are. Like I said, you asked me in my career, I've always taken risks. And any of the major successes I've had are because we've taken risks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for coming to this podcast. For those of you who've been here before, I really appreciate it. You guys are so supportive. And for those newcomers, welcome. Thanks for subscribing. And I hope you enjoy this as much as we all do and want to recommend it to your friends and family and people in your life that can benefit from these great people in the entertainment business and their amazing advice in terms of personal, professional, and everything in between. And today is no different. I've been waiting for this guy for a long, long time. Bill Hillary. And before I get started, I just want to let you know if you want to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter, or you can do so on barrycats.com, and I'll be glad to reach you as soon as I possibly can. And without further ado, let's introduce our guest, and I know you're going to like him a lot. My guest, Bill Hillary, is one of the most groundbreaking and unique television executives in our business. He's done so many different things I can't even count, including the executive vice president of Nouveau TV when Jennifer Lopez came on. He's been the chief executive officer and president of BBC America. He's been the president of Fuse TV. And he was a general manager and executive vice president of Comedy Central. Most importantly, under his watch, he was responsible for iconic shows such as The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, South Park, The Office, Lonely Planet, Globe Trekker, and of course, the man who made the deal happen at Comedy Central for one of the greatest and most successful comedy shows in history. Dave Chappelle and Neil Brennan's Chappelle Show. Now presently the president of Moment to Moment Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, an incredibly inspiring man and a long time coming. Here from his home in Venice, California, Bill Hillary. Hey, how are you, Barry? I feel good. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. Yeah, the, the early Dean Cook days at Comedy Central. That's 17 years now. That's a long time. I know. I know. I'm aging like Clinton <laughs> in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't end well. No, it did not. 
I think the first thing I really wanted to ask you was because you've been the president of at least three or four different entities that have done really, really well. And if I look on this fabulous resume here, I would say that it's more than four. When you're in a situation where you're the head of whether it be Comedy Central or Nouveau or Fuse or any number of BBC America, getting there, they say in this crazy world, it's not the hardest getting there, it's the hardest staying there. So tell our audience, is there some kind of formula or blueprint for the navigation through all different kinds of people who want that top job, but who are in the sidelines and the trenches and they come up to you and they say, hey, Bill, how's your day going today as you're moving up? And you know that they want the same gig you want, but you have to work together as a team, but you also have your eye on the prize. So I just wanted to know, has there always been a formula for you that works to get through the trenches and get to the top? I think a formula is going to be too strong, but for me, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. You have a vision, something you believe in. You've got to believe in it. People go for jobs now because they want the title or they want the kudos. I think you've got to have a vision. You've got to believe you can make that vision work. I personally moved quite a lot in my career, although I am older, so it's, it's actually not as much as it seems. But I've moved for things I really wanted to do. I've moved for things I believe I can achieve, not just a title. I, I've actually taken downward moves because I believe in the role and I believe I can make a difference and I believe I can do something interesting and I believe I can have fun. Those are the most important things, not just the greasy pole of the career circuit in, in California, but actually believing in what you're doing, being excited about it, being fun, and bringing the team with you. That, that's my equation. And the thing is, is that when I look at a lot of these companies that you were the head of, it's hard to believe that you were as excited about some of the gigs as you were about others. Right, I'm happy to go through them, but you know, challenges are good. I love challenges. I'd rather be in a job that's really challenged me. I mean, I left a huge job in the BBC in London to come to be general manager at Comedy Central. I was running a lot of BBC One, BBC Two, all the independent output of all those channels. And I came here to be part of something because I loved John Stewart. I loved South Park. I loved what they were doing. So some, for some people that was, well, why is he doing that? Why is that a backward step? Well, of course not. It was five of the best years of my life. And we did Chappelle, we did Crank Yankers, The Man Show, Reno 911. I mean, when you look at what we achieved in those four to five years, that was more important to me than being a politician at the BBC in London. When you saw what was happening at Comedy Central before you came, people coming in and out, you were at a place that was really stable, BBC America, and then you go to a place which at the time, although they had some groundbreaking things happening, it was the beginnings. It was the beginning. You know, John Stewart wasn't John Stewart. Yeah, four, four months, I think he was on the job. Yeah. So you have this thing that isn't as stable and isn't as much money but you make the move why do you make the move because you're excited about it because you believe in it and you know i grew up in, in northern ireland which is very important to me um it was a tough time i grew up during the troubles um in belfast in belfast yeah yeah i actually studied law before i went to the bbc um and at that time you know it, it, i think that really in me formed my opinions about things and I knew I had to leave at some point because I, the, the divide was so huge, not dissimilar to some of the things that are happening now where you're either on one side or the other. And, you know, it was so strange to me. It was the same religion, Catholic and Protestant, both believe in Jesus Christ and God. But you were it was so polarized. You couldn't be in the middle. And it was comedy and music that really took me through that. I love both those genres. Uh, music with people like Stiff Little Fingers, you know, um, the Water Boys, even you 2 um, and comedians. I'll not go through them all, but a lot of, of comedy. And, you know, those things are very important. Um, 
And when I left, that's what I went to do. I went to, to take a risk. I took a three-month contract. I left a, a full-time job in Belfast and took a three-month contract at the BBC in London just because I wanted to do So that. even when you were starting, your blueprint and your mantra was, I'm going to leave things that are comfortable and that are secure to go to things that aren't as secure. I will always go for something I want to do and I believe in um, because if I have a weakness I get bored quickly and I want to achieve and I want to see success but by success I mean in what I do great shows and great talent on screen wherever that screen is so I will take a risk I like taking risks that's always been part of who I am I still like doing it I still would rather take a risk that might fail than sit in a very not that there are secure jobs left frankly but in a boring job that I'm not happy in and so for our audience that's a little younger and not as schooled in history of what was happening in the area you were growing up would you mind letting our audience know when the shit hit the fan really and what was happening to your business life and your personal life with all the things that are happening how were you in danger well the troubles in northern Ireland were pretty serious in the 70s and 80s it was my late teens early 20s um when i was at the bbc my office was blown up i think five times the last time was completely wrecked the windows blown out my one of my best friends had his stomach blown out um you know there were no right or wrong there was no black and white it was a very difficult time and yet the people in Northern Ireland are very resilient. Now it's got amazing comedy clubs, amazing music. But in those days, people were scared to go out of their houses and go into town. The cinemas were all closed uh, and it was dangerous. Um, but through that, I think, you know, listening to the news was not very satisfying because all you got again was more polarization. But when you went to the odd comedy club and some of the music venues, which were kind of late night and underground, there was a real movement there. And that's kind of where you find some normality. And, you know, comedy and music always find a way to get a message across and make you think in a different way. It's why I love comedy, especially, you know, a lot of comedians don't polarize. They make you think about something and they don't just present facts, they present ideas and you have to wrestle with those ideas. And I was so happy to have that in Northern Ireland because it was so important to have some normality and people who were saying things which made you think about the situation. You can't imagine how an economy even exists. It's one of the things about our country that you don't really understand here why isn't there more terrorism than there is they not stopped to do the things they did back then in northern ireland what stops them from putting fear in everyone's hearts here but for some reason it doesn't happen as much i don't know if that's a testament to something behind the scenes that our government is doing to thwart things i have no idea but I don't understand how it's possible to operate a company when your office has been blown up five times. I didn't operate, it was the BBC, so I didn't operate. But you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah, no, it, it was tough. But then a lot of our programs reflected that. We did a lot of entertainment programs. We did some serious programs too. I did a radio show, which probably changed my life, where I interviewed one of the very first things I ever did. It was called Street Talk. You interviewed them. Uh, I interviewed them, So you yeah. were the talent. Well, no, because it was radio. So it was, it was more just interviews cut together. But I mean, I remember one show where I interviewed 17-year-old men who had had their kneecaps shot off in retaliation uh, by one of the other paramilitaries. Um, and I looked at them and I thought, there has to be a better way than this. Um, and I don't think I realized it at the time just how that did affect me. But I then came to love comedy that makes people think, that makes you question. And in any democracy, I don't think it's just news that needs to be free. It's comedians and it's musicians. It's people with a voice need to be free to discuss and talk about what they believe in. And to me, that's a very important calming influence. And America has been pretty good at that. Out of 100 percent of all the people that you knew in Northern Ireland, that was your circle. 
what percentage spoke out and said i'm protestant and i'm with this movement i'm catholic i'm with this movement and what percentage just kept their mouth shut and never said it, what it, they it was were? probably only 20 percent that were really militant uh on either side um uh and then there were a lot of very scared people who didn't want anything to do with it a lot of people the way to deal is the ostrich syndrome where you bury your head you don't even admit that it's happening and then there were pe a lot of people left i mean a lot of young people then emigrated because they didn't want to be there um but it was probably only 20 25 of the population really felt you know that it was worth something worth fighting for and killing for so you start off at the BBC using the example of how you break through and get to the top and get the job at Comedy Central. You start off in what entry level position after giving up the law career? I was a radio producer. So I did one year of radio. And then how did you move forward? I got a job. They set up what was called then a youth programs unit because Northern Ireland was seen as a deprived area, which it was. Um, and it was, so it was programming aimed at the 18 to 34 year old audience, which is kind of something I've done all my life. I did the big breakfast on Channel 4, The Word, which is the most outrageous program I think ever in the UK, Eurotrash. So I've always been involved in younger programming that, that has a message, very strong message. The big breakfast was one of the biggest. Huge, yeah, huge. So was the word in his day. I saw Kirk Cobain for the first time playing in the UK. Uh, and that was just amazing when it came to music and comedy. And they had like major musicians and comedians from all over the world on that show. And it was live and it was late night and it was outrageous. And who were three musical artists and three comedians that inspired you out of all the people that performed on those on shows? The well, I mean, the word, you probably wouldn't know a lot of the comedians because they were British. But uh, I mean, I, I'll never forget seeing Kirk being for the first time. Um, do you know a band that, again, most people nowadays probably have forgotten, but I remember seeing Arrested Development for the first time. And they were pretty amazing. Um, just their whole show. Um, and Bjork, who she did a, a like an amazing, I can't remember which song it was now, I think it was uh, Big Time Sexuality, I think it was. Uh, so those are three artists that I saw in those days. That was like, you're talking 30 years ago. Was that show live or live the tape? It started off live until uh, until one day, one of the Arquette family told one of the bluest jokes, which I'm not repeating here. And uh, let's just say two weeks later, it went live to tape, but on a delay. So what happened was you had to be in the studio at 11 o'clock every Friday night, and we would do it as live, but there'd be a one minute delay. So if something happened that couldn't be broadcast, you had to basically go to a commercial break. But you had it was like you were on duty to make sure. But you know, it added a kind of excitement. It was like a huge show in the U in the UK. It added an excitement and it added like an element of surprise that kept the show very current and very alive. One of the qualities of great artists that people don't talk about a lot is seizing the live moment. Yeah. And it's something that I don't believe people train for, but there's certain people that when the red light goes on, it's magic. Did it blow you away when you'd see certain artists that you knew these are artists are great and then they get to that moment where it's live and they just don't deliver the way like others did yeah no i i, I and, and also some great comedians of bad nights i mean i think comedians are very strange animals i mean I, I have lots of friends a lot of them are very introverted and quiet until that red light goes on and then when the red light goes on they take a completely different you know personality that's what makes them great comedians um and I've seen comedians that I really respect having bad nights. I've seen comedians that I really respect being booed by the audience and having to deal with it. And I've seen comedians trying to cope with that. And they either, some of them go the, the I call it the dirty route. So they start swearing a lot because they think they'll get a laugh out of that, but it never really works. Some of them, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Wanda Sykes. I saw one night when the crowd were giving her a hard time. It was just totally amazing. And, you know, 
completely control them. And I've seen comedians who, you know, just die. I don't think there's a lot they can do about that. Uh, that's just the way it is. But they learn to cope, most of them. I'm always fascinated by that as well, because it's something that we could never see. Yeah, there's a f famous independent movie, Sliding Doors, where right, sure. you see how different things could happen if something changed a little bit. And when we go into a show and we see a great comic not do well, I don't know if you do this, but I always think to myself, okay, let's pretend he didn't go on, but Jim Jeffries went on here. Right. And, or Chappelle went on here. Right. Or Chris Rock or Jim Gaffigan or Dane Cook. Which one would be able to have come out of this crowd with them giving them a standing ovation? which one would tap into the energy that they have and be able to navigate through it? Would all of them be able to do that? Would none of them? I, I think that's fascinating. And I think the answer is most of them can. Most comedians can deal with it, but some can't. And as I said, some people just have off days. I've seen them being amazingly brilliant at, with the audience. I mean, one of the concerts I will remember in, uh, I think it was Madison Square Garden, which to say the least was strange was after half baked and jim brewer and that was the first movie i ever was a part of selling oh really one of my favorite movies i mean it's a fantastic <laughs> movie but they did a concert together and you know i hadn't realized before that the audiences for Chappelle and the audience for jim brewer you know are very different um and so when Chappelle was on he had a moderately rough time with the jim brewer audience and vice versa um both navigated it really well but it showed it showed me you know the true genius of a lot of comedians who are able to do that um, well i believe i remember that show when you tell me if i'm high here so that was in the madison square garden theater that's which right. was a 4500 to 5000 seat theater and it was one of the first shows that they did it was a really big audience yes so what was always amazing about brewer at the time, one of the greatest performers Fantastic. that I've ever seen in my life and somebody who could physically do so many things. And off stage was a guy who was just as funny yeah. as anybody. I think there's something to be said for comedians that are more physical with tougher crowds. I think they have a better chance of winning the lottery than somebody who just stands there and I think you're slings right. the stories. Right. So even though Chappelle's material, and I think if Jim were sitting here, he might say that Chappelle's material was at the time far superior to his, although Jim did have one piece that was equal or as good or better than anybody's. And if you've ever not seen it, if the audience, you should Google it. It's about how he talks about alcohol and the different alcohol. Oh, I remember. I know it. Inside yeah, yeah. your stomach. I don't yeah. want to spoil it. Yeah. And the battle and the bouncer inside your stomach dealing with the alcohol. Incredible, incredible piece. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think if you're physical as a performer, a lot of times you have a better shot if it's a larger crowd to win them over if they're rough as yeah. opposed to somebody who just stands right there. oh absolutely and you've got to take them on because if you don't do that you're seen as weak and they just get worse the best put down i ever saw i think in my life and probably the most difficult audience was wanda sykes at the press critics association and they had a luncheon with awards etc and she was doing the key speech blah 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 to set this up this is normally in a ballroom at the beverly hilton it's exactly where it okay, was okay there's these tables that are like 10 tops and half the crowd is seated so they're not even facing the right way or their necks are crooked back and in pain and there's not even necessarily a stage sometimes as there is a dais, like That's a right. roast. 
And sometimes people are talking from their seats. Some people are standing from their seats. Sometimes they go to the podium and it's all bright lights and this horrible gig to do well. Really hard for a comedian because there's no feedback. These people are moderately cynical. They've been locked in a room for two weeks, you know, criticizing programs. So you got them on a bad day. It's the last day. They're tired, etc. She did the most amazing thing because she'd just been on a sitcom on Fox, which didn't do particularly well. So what she did was she got up and you could see already the apathy and and she had taken all the worst reviews that people in the audience had made about her <laughs> and she called them out and she roasted them. So she went, okay, can we have such and such from the Chicago Tribune or whoever? They sit up and she said, you said this about me. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear the audience, all of a sudden I could see them shaking and these journalists all of a sudden sat up and were like, oh, was she going to call on me? And then of course they quite liked it. So they were kind of wanting to be called out. So it, it was just truly brilliant because it could have been the most boring lunch ever and she completely turned it around I think she's pretty genius at that actually really truly brilliant and it really worked you know um, I, I thought it was, and obviously then you've got Michelle Wolf last year yes <laughs> I mean she has had so much flack for that and yet I thought she was really funny that's what a comet does it makes you think they make you think hey everybody I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. What I don't understand is those correspondent dinners that Michelle Wolf did, 
this is what every comic does every year. They want them to do that. They hire them. Obviously, it didn't go well for Larry Wilmore. Right. I thought Michelle, actually, it could be argued, again, if she were sitting here, she might have said afterwards, if somebody asked her right afterwards, which they couldn't because she sat down, how did that go? She might say, well, there were a lot of it that went really rough. Yeah. But she didn't know that it would probably propel her as much as it did because that's what's great about what you've seen throughout your career and what i've seen again we talked about the person that goes on with the audience what would happen if somebody else did it and i just am always fascinated by that and if you look at those correspondent dinners that's the way if you look at the programming on comedy central we were there for five years you put shows forward, and why is it that certain shows that you think are going to be extraordinary aren't? Other shows that you're like, I'll give this a shot. The Chappelle show where you have somebody who, the guy did seven pilots in eight years when That's I was representing. Oh, did you represent Dude? I represented him for did eight years. Did not know that, Barry. I didn't yeah, know that. Eight right. years, and then... He moved to Ohio and took about six years off and then got together with Neil Brennan, who another thing you might not know that Neil and Dave met at the Boston Comedy Club. Neil was my doorman. In my no, comedy I did club. not know that. Either. Yes. And so let's face it. I mean, the biggest thing Neil had done in terms of this world was all that on Nickelodeon. Right. Dave, they'd worked on Half-Baked together, but there was no evidence that they could do a television show. Even the showrunner that you put on initially on the show was somebody who hadn't really done a lot of things either. But, but AC, I think that's interesting. And first, just so we can clear it up, I don't believe a television executive when they say, oh, I knew this was going to be a hit six months before. I just, because nobody knows what's going to hit. You can take chances. You can put all the right writers in. You can put all the, and you can still have a flop. So I don't think you can guarantee anything. But for me, and what I always do, no matter what the channel is, if I want to work or run a channel, then I want the programs on that channel to be the things that define the channel. And Comedy Central was supposed to be about taking risks, taking chances, doing something new. So when I talk to talent, um, you know, like Chappelle, I spoke with him a couple of times before we tried to do a deal. I really believed he had something to say. I really believed that he had an attitude uh, towards racism in America. I mean, you could talk to Chappelle about South Africa and he would give you the history in like 10 minutes. He's unbelievably clued up and smart about those things. This is not just like a hobby for him. He understands it. And, you know, you can so easily kill that. You can kill it by, not always, but you can kill it by putting an experienced producer in who wants to make the same show that they made five years ago. You can kill it, and we almost did, but didn't. In the first show that Chappelle did, he did a 12-minute sketch about a blind black supremacist where his head explodes in the end. And the powers that be because mtv were very involved were very well we don't do anything longer than three three and a half minutes that's mtv culture um and i had to get, really get involved and protect Chappelle because the minute you start making rules like everything has to be three minutes everything has to be like this then all you're doing is regurgitating the same thing again and again and actually i think that sketch held up 12 minutes long is a long time in cable television but it held up and people still remember it as one of the best sketches but they had to take that risk. The things they remember most right after that, if that, I would say that one's number two. Number one is the one that was a 22-minute sketch. Oh, um, Rick Jim. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, I mean, again, a risk. But it, like I said, you asked me in my career, I've always taken risks. And any of the major successes I've had are because we've taken risks. I've never, I mean, I, I don't want to give an example, but I did one thing at Comedy Central that I'm not proud of because it was the right thing to do. And it was a big name that everyone was saying, oh, it'd be great to get them on Comedy Central. But it didn't fit the brand and it wasn't particularly risky. And, you know, at the end of the day, the things I think that really did work were the ones where people went, wow, 
did you see that last night or that? And Chappelle makes you think. He makes you think about who you are and and your attitudes. So you get the call from some headhunter probably at BBC America who says, hey, Bill, would you be interested if there was a job at Comedy Central? And so presumably the next step is you're flying into New York to meet That's with. That's exactly right. With, and who was the people that you met with? I met with? with Jeff Bucus. Okay. Judy McGrath, Tom Freston, and my amazing boss at Comedy Central, Larry Divney. Wow. He was phenomenal guy, you know. Incredible four people. You met with all four of them at I once. met uh, over a weekend. Yeah, it was, it was a weekend. I remember it because Hanson were number one on the charts. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember it was everywhere. I'm like, please, no, not that again. So... You come into New York, they send you your first class tickets. Do you tell your bosses, I'm just taking a weekend in New York and I'm just going to relax and I'll be back on Monday. They don't know that you're they taking They don't even know you've gone. I literally probably took a day off. I can't remember now, but I think I took Friday off when I was Got there. It. So you go there and this is something that our audience doesn't know. Right. Our audience knows what interviews are like for jobs all across the right. country. They don't know what the interview process is when you're interviewing for the head of a network. Right. So okay. you won't know who Larry Diffney is, but he is. I, of course, know Larry. An amazing guy who's one of the best ad sales guy I've ever worked with. And he was the president. I was the general manager. And an ad sales guy. Why don't you explain that to the audience? Ad sales guys are basically the people who sell the airtime in between the programs to pay for the content. Um, but, a, but, but a party guy, a really good boss, a people's person allowed me to take risks that other people wouldn't. He was he was vital, actually, at the end of the day. But he was also very unconventional, which again attracted me to the job because I was working high level at the BBC, which is quite corporate. Um, I get into the Soho Hotel, one of those new hotels in those days, and I get a phone call from Larry Didney saying, oh, meet up with you and we'll go for dinner. So I go down, I meet him. I've never met him before. Is this Friday or Saturday? I think it was Friday. I can't God, remember okay. now. I think it was. So you go out to dinner. We we don't. No, we go to the car wash. And I'm like, this is either a really interesting interview tactic to see how I'll cope with it, or he's just a regular guy. So he picks you up in his own in car. His car. And we go into the car wash and, you know, while the, the things are turning around and the soap's buzzing on the car, <laughs> Larry's like, well, what do you think of New York? And what do you think of this? And have you watched South Park? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you know what? It was really smart. I don't think he did it purposely, but it was really smart because it immediately put you on the same level and at ease. And then we started to talk and we had a great dinner. We talked for hours. We talked about comedy. We talked about Comedy Central. You know, we talked about how Comedy Central then could broaden um, because it was very much the South Park channel. South Park had been such a fantastic major success, but most of the ratings were driven by that. So they had to, you know, one of the things he said to me was, we have to get four or five other shows. They may not be as big as South Park, but they have to level out the network. Otherwise, we're just a one shot and who was the president before you who was trying to do that but it wasn't working as well well no it did started to be fair it was um it was doug herzog yeah so the president so but doug, doug was there and then what's odd about the thing with doug doug was there started things and then i don't think he got fired i think he got oh, no, offered he left. the job at fox. fox great job yeah he left he got offered the presidency yeah. of fox yeah. and then after you left, he came back. Well, after, no, no. Then he went to USA, I think, for a while around USA. Then he came back, yeah. When you left, he came back to that, follow you, right? Yeah, well, I left because basically um, MTV Networks bought. I had been there five years. And, you know, five years is a moderately long time. I actually think people who run networks should leave after five or six years because you need new blood. You need new ideas. Should be like a presidential uh, thing. Uh, yeah. In, in a way, I, I, you know, I know a lot of people don't think that. But for me, I'd had a great run. You know, we really had a great run. It was like, to me, the heyday. Um, and I was going to start repeating the same things again. And uh, I got uh, headhunted for the BBC job. So I thought, you know what? That's interesting. I'll go and do that for a couple of years. And then Doug came back. So keep let's keep going back. So you're at the car wash, the dinner. Now Saturday, what happens? Well, it was, I don't remember the exact days, but basically I went for a meeting with Tom Freston in his office and Judy McGrath in her office. 
Um, separately? Separately, yeah. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And when you were that night with Larry, did he say, okay, just want to let you know you're going to meet with Tom. Tom's personality is this, and it will really help if you bring up these things and this thing. Judy doesn't like it when you mention this, this, and that. And did he <laughs> no, prepare he, you? No, he really didn't. No, he was like, you know, you love Tom. I mean, Larry's a great character. You love Tom. And Tom and Judy are an amazing team. To get, we're an amazing team together. Um, I'd met Tom and Judy before because we'd, I'd, when I was at Channel 4 in the UK, we'd bought Real World and Beavis and Butthead. And I'd done a lot of work with Van Toffler. And Van Toffler started as legal at MTV. Exactly. And then he was the, the, the lawyer there. And actually, he was head of international. That's how I got to know him. Um, Jeff, because I didn't know. Um, and uh, I had a meeting with him. I think that was probably on the Monday. And then I came back. And as the meetings were going, you did Larry, you go to sleep that night, you're like, God, this was great. And each meeting you felt went well. There wasn't a time where you went home to your hotel room and you said, God, I wish I'd have said that differently. To that yes, time. of course there is. But honestly, my attitude to all these things is you go for a job. If you really believe in it, you give it 100%. You're passionate about it. If it doesn't work out, it's not right for you. You know, at the end of the day, you can't force yourself into something if it's not right for you. And it's better not to be in something if it's not right for you. So you give it everything you've got. You go, I love comedy. I'd love to live in New York. I love South Park. I love John Stewart. You know, I'd actually been part of the John Stewart distribution, the, uh, the syndicated chat show in the UK. So I knew all those people. I knew everything about it. And I was really interested in doing something different and taking a new chapter in my life, even though it meant you know, moving to New York. Uh, so yeah, sure, you have doubts and you go, if I'd said that, would it be different? And if I'd said that, but at the end of the day, there's really nothing you can do about it. You do your best, you be yourself, you believe in it, you go for the job and you either get it if you don't. And if you don't, you don't look back. Fine, it wasn't for you, move on. Did the headhunter or somebody share with you, Bill, you're coming over and they're meeting three people I can't tell you who the other two are. You're going in this weekend, or you just had no knowledge. Of They're never that one. specific. Most headhunters are not. I mean, I've been headhunted four or five times, so most of the jobs I've got, I was headhunted for. Um, very rarely do they tell you how many other people. Very rarely do they. They'll tell you where you are in the process. So it's a first interview, you know, meet with this person, blah, blah, blah. And then if they like you, we've got a second interview. Then you meet with the, the heads. Unfortunately, because I was in London, if I remember right, we met all on the one weekend because I couldn't fly back and forwards every weekend. So, Did you um, ever find out afterwards who was up for the job? Do you know, I did. I can't remember now. It's, it's, but there uh, was competition. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. There were a lot of people. And did you there. ever find out what it was you said or did that blew them away, that made their decision easy? No, I, I think probably, you know, it was the right fit because I was a, I was a, I suppose at the end of the day, I was a risk, but I was a unique candidate. You know, they didn't have somebody with British comedy background and music background. I worked in youth programming on 18 to 34 year olds for years. Um, you know, I'd run a very big budget at the BBC. I knew how to do that. Um, 
but they took a risk. And I think that's why it worked. And it's, we're back to that again. Honestly, if there's a problem in the industry, it's when they stop taking risks. Um, and, you know, people criticize Netflix because they got so much money, but it doesn't even matter about money. It, it, at least they're doing something original or doing something new. And having more money is easier because you can pilot 73 things rather than four. I've never had that luxury. I've always had to go, here's a budget. Here are the few things that I'll, I'll be able to pilot and go to series with. And you've got to be very precise. And the equation for me is attitude and risk. Always was. It has to have an attitude. It has to be risky. It has to say something that you can't already see. Otherwise, you're just copying. And that's fine in broadcast, but not in cable. Well, I think the thing to me that people don't really talk about with Netflix that I feel is the model for success. There's one thing to take a risk in network and cable television where the evidence of how your risk does is knowledgeable by the entire world. But it's another thing like Netflix to take risks where you're knowledge of how the show is doing in the world is unknown so if you green light a show like the end of the fucking world which right. is a great great show yeah. which was acquired by i don't know where in the uk or right amazing show amazingly yeah. shot done in such a way that blows you away you can't believe what you're seeing these characters and what's happening and it's always fascinating when something starts off in the journey but that show could have 100,000 people watching it or 100 million and no one knows. So is that a risk? Is that a risk when no one knows whether you failed or not? No, I, I think it's not a business risk. And that's whether you like it or not. That is the very interesting thing about Netflix. They have a lot of money. They can take a lot more chances and not. But at least they have a lot of money. So their business plan is a more simplistic one because they don't need ratings and they don't need advertisers. They just need to make sure they have great content people want to pay for on a monthly basis. That's where their risk is. Where I think the risk comes in is is just doing something very different and not getting panned for it either, you know, even if people don't watch it. I mean, there's some shows I've done that probably weren't the best rated shows ever, but are my favorite, like Insomniac with David Tell. Love that. Love that show. That wasn't the biggest reader. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the smallest ratings, you know. And then there's some mistakes I mean, I've made. Like I, I canceled Strangers with Candy, and I loved that show, but I had to because, you know, the business was basically I couldn't afford the show. But if it was on ratings, but if it was on Netflix, it could still live because no one would know the ratings. Yeah. And that doesn't make it a bad show. In fact, the opposite, it probably would still be there. If I could have, on a, from a business sense, at Comedy Central, keep Strangers with Candy, I would have done it. But Strangers with Candy probably cost five to ten times more to produce than Insomniac. Yeah. What is Insomniac? A guy with literally two cameras, a sound guy, a producer and dave on the street i mean maybe there's another guy a showrunner putting the structure together but if you really think about it if you were doing insomniac today you could probably do it with a crew of five to seven people oh less than that yeah predators they call them the producer editor cameraman yeah so you know you could but you see insomniac because i started the lonely planet series which is one of the most actually successful series i've ever done i think wow. it ran i think there's like 270 episodes ran for 18 years became globe trekker and the reason i wanted to do insomniac was because it's kind of it's like a late night lonely planet with a great comedian for a, a new generation and i loved that show just because i thought he it really suited him it was you know it felt organic because that's what he would do at night. And it gave you an insight into America and cities in America that nobody ever gives you. So I, I, I loved it. Um, but sorry, back, back to Netflix. I think the business model is a very interesting one that is going to give a lot of money to programming. But what I'm saying is I think they really are taking risks with content and I think they make some really good shows. So you might criticize them in a way that, well, how do we know if they're working or not? 
I still think they make great shows. I want to get back to you get the call. How long afterwards did you get the gig at Comedy Central? Um, oh, uh, wow. That was very interesting. So I think it was, I think they talked to a couple of other people, then made me an offer, um, and uh, we negotiated. Uh, and it was just before, it was 1999, and it was just before the Christmas holiday. Um and I think then I resigned. Then I signed letter of intent. But what nobody thought of was visas, working visas, because I was a UK citizen then. I'm an American citizen now, but I was a UK citizen then. And that took a month. And it was very difficult to get. Um, so although we'd signed the deal and it was all happening, I didn't actually get to start the job until February. It was like four to six weeks later. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. To young comic talent, wow, that's so hard. Believe in your voice. Don't give up. I mean, honestly, that's what it's about because it's so subjective anyway, comedy, that there are people out there who will want your voice. And it's hard when you start, but do as much stand-up as you can. Get to be known on the circuit, but have a unique voice. A unique voice is more important than anything else when it comes to comedy. Don't copy anyone else. Just be unique. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.